This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss CMS's recent direct provider contracting request for information. With me to discuss the RFI is Ms. Mara McDermott, VP at McDermott Plus Consulting, a subsidiary of the D.C. law firm McDermott, Will, and Emery. Mara, welcome to the program. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Mara's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Listeners may recall I discussed Title I of the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act, or MACRA, with Mara nearly two years ago, or June 14, 2016. On background, CMS's interest in direct provider contracting stems at least in part to the development of primary care payment models over approximately the past 10 or 15 years where an individual or self-insured employer paid a primary care provider a fixed monthly amount to provide a discrete number of primary care services. For individuals, this is frequently or otherwise termed concierge medicine. When employers participate or where they are the payer, these agreements are simply termed direct primary care. Direct because providers were paid up front a fixed per patient per month amount. Possibly the most noted DPC likely because it attracted financial backing from Amazon, was the Seattle-based firm with 13,000 members, Q-Lions. That, however, closed its doors a year ago this month. In fact, in preparing this RFI, this past winter, CMS visited at least four cities to interview various private pay or direct primary care providers. The nine-page RFI consists of 22 questions in six categories, Provider state participation, Benny participation, payment, general model design, program integrity and beneficiary protections, and questions related to accountable care organization or the Medicare Share Savings Program. Public comments were due this last Friday. With me again to discuss the DPC RFI or where CMS is headed with this is Mara McDermott. So, Mar, with that as uh, background, uh, let me ask you, were you surprised at all by this? I mean, this RFI in some ways uh, came out of the blue. Were you surprised by it? So, David, you know, I wasn't surprised by the conversation with CMMI around this model. I think I, like many other observers in the space, had been hearing rumblings for a while about CMS's interest in this type of model I know there were some companies who were expecting something more uh, more complete, further along than an RFI to come out of the agency on a topic like this. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't surprised. I know the agency has been wrestling with where we go with CPC Plus and the next generation ACO program, and what comes next, and trying to um, you know gather information from industry in terms of shaping that direction going forward. Yes, thank you. Thanks for mentioning uh, the Comprehensive Primary Care Plus demonstration. This is the one subsequent to just CPC uh, because, of course, these um, this DPC and ACOs and CPC Plus are related in that they're primary care focused. However, with a DPC, 
again, CMS would pay directly uh, the provider, again, this um, per uh, Benny per month uh, fixed amount. So they're very similar, except a payment is a bit different. Just um, uh, generally as well, the general question rather, and this will get me in the pros and cons of this, do you think this is doable? And again, this would be, uh, if CMS went forward, this would be a demonstration, but do you think this is actually doable? So I think it is, although I don't think it's doable for everybody. You know, I think there are a subset of physician organizations, whether they're direct primary care practices or larger multi-specialty medical groups, as are referenced in the RFI, that have been asking CMS to test this type of model because they have seen success with it with their other payers. So I think, you know, in some ways, where there's a will, there's a way. There are There are providers who've been clamoring for this. And I think that what I saw, at least in the comments that I read and and in my reading up um, in preparation for this conversation with you, there's a lot of skepticism from a large swath of the provider community, but there are providers who are committed to this direction. And so I I do think it's possible. I would welcome your insights on that as well. Well, uh, again, the idea moreover being that a physician or a provider group gets uh, uh, in advance, again, capitated a monthly payment. Obviously, um, there are provider groups, as you suggested, who've been doing this for a while. would like to see uh, Medicare uh, initiate something uh, similar. So let's get into specifics. Uh, other than just interest in this, and it's in part because uh, this simplifies for providers a lot of the administration or the administrative burden and in fact, CMS says that uh, in the demo, when and if they field it, they will try to simplify and make more attractive for providers their participation, simplify the claims processing uh, process for participating providers. So let's run through some of the, what's your sense of some of the advantages other than maybe reducing admin burden? And, and the upfront payment certainly is attractive. And let's leave aside... Well, we, you can mention certainly uh, the desire to take on risk-bearing, but what do you see are the positive aspects of this? Sure. So, so one big one, I that may be you know sort of a, a glimmer in the eye, <laughs> depending on how CMS does the formula. But I think many providers have looked at the prepaid capitation or you know per beneficiary per month prepayment as a more stable, predictable financial model than a shared savings model available to them now. So that, you know, they would know how much money they're getting each month and it would be a reliable source of funding coming in the door to enable them to create the processes of care that they want to create. So that's one. And then the second uh, advantage I see, at least hinted at in the RFI, maybe more strongly than a hint, is this concept of an engaged beneficiary. So as you well know, one of the main criticisms of the ACO program has, a, has been a lack of beneficiary engagement, lack of beneficiary stickiness, lack of beneficiary knowledge. And what the RFI seems to be getting at is could you have more active beneficiary, even enrollment in this type of model, or at least a more engaged beneficiary, and how could CMS think through even differential cost sharing and things like that to get more, um, you know, sort of more beneficiary involvement in the success and selection of these types of models. 
So those are really two key areas um, in addition to the desire to take on greater levels of risk where I see some opportunity for the right providers that participate in this program. Let's stay with the engaged Benny or a more engaged Benny and capitation. We do know Bennies who beneficiaries who are more engaged tend to be better at self-management, not uh, an insubstantial uh, issue, particularly with the prevalence of chronic disease and capitation. So one approach to this, and this has been argued by the DPC, Direct Primary Care Coalition, is that actually the payments not be made to the provider, uh, but they think uh, either directly to the beneficiary, and then they in turn make the monthly payment, or that the payment somehow is funneled through uh, the beneficiary's health uh, savings, HSA health savings account, this certainly would uh, combine the two aspects and engage the beneficiary. you have thoughts on the sort of alternative way of actually making the monthly payment? So I haven't given a lot of thought to those types of models in terms of where, where the money flows. I know that one thing CMS has wrestled with and it's referenced in the RFI but has come up you know, countless times before is the issue of, uh, medical, of med, med sup, so supplemental coverage, and how do you, you know, get an engaged beneficiary from a spending cost, out-of-pocket cost perspective, taking into account the presence of med sup. And so I'm intrigued to hear more about what the DPC coalition and others say about that. But I, um, I, you know, I, that feels to me like a pretty significant departure from where we've been. No, I, I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, the coalition's obviously not self-censoring themselves. They're, they're going to, you know, why not? These are pretty open-ended questions in the RFI. So that's likely going to be uh, their argument. Um, let's go to, well, let's stay with capitation because that begs this issue of whether or not, and CMS is undecided when you read the question set, but they certainly suggest they're interested in, in, in comments relative to whether this would qualify as an alternative payment model under MACRA. And certainly, if there's risk via capitation, that in theory puts providers at quote-unquote risk beyond a nominal amount. What's your sense of, and CMS somewhat suggests that maybe initially we won't, but maybe we'll evolve to this model actually qualifying as an APM. Sure. So, you know, CMS actually was pretty clear on this in prior macro rules that capitation would qualify mm-hmm. as, an, as a more than nominal risk payment amount. The type of models that are contemplated by this RFI are pretty wide ranging, in my opinion. So, going from you know direct primary care type models to capitated ACO. Models you could imagine, as they have done with so many other types of models, having some tracks that do qualify as advanced APMs from the start date and others that do not. Uh, it makes sense to me that this, at least at some level, the type of model that's contemplated here where you're taking risk for a defined patient population seems to be exactly what MACRA contemplated in the advanced APM category, almost the destination of all this reform that providers have been asking for for a long time. So it would make sense to me that they would count them. Yeah, sooner or later. I mean, why do the demo if not sooner or later you're going to get this into the APM pathway? Uh, of course, the magic is obviously always how to do this. Let's go to the limitations uh, of this. And just I'll just get one out of the way. 
not that it's a limitation, but it's a problem, and that is I've heard from direct primary care providers, physicians, particularly in the Northwest, who are not at all happy about this. Uh, they These providers got into DPC uh, in the commercial sector because they were trying to avoid having to participate in the Medicare program, obviously, uh, huge national social insurance program comes with, again, some administrative burden. So they got into this, and now they see this as an encroachment uh, by potentially CMS and the Medicare program. So they're not particularly happy with even this being fielded as a finite five-year demonstration in the Medicare space. But that aside, what do you see the potential pitfalls or problems with fielding this model uh, despite doing it however intelligently? So, you know, one pitfall or issue which you're, I think, referring to is just the challenge that CMMI has of developing models that appeal to a wide swath of very different, in terms of size and geography and payer mix, practices. And I think, I don't, I don't see a way for CMS to really overcome that challenge, you know, no matter what they design, they're going to have, you know, providers, perhaps like those that you referred to, for whom the model represents a change they don't like. You know, we saw, we've seen, we've seen that with NextGen, we've seen that, I think with almost, with, with the bundles, we've seen that with almost everything they've rolled out. So I think there's that. You know, one question, I guess, in the model design is, um, how sophisticated practices have to be to really be able to be successful in a model like this. Mm-hmm. What I saw in a number of the comments was uh, commenters suggesting that there should be qualifying criteria for the practices, which I think is something we've seen with MSFP and others. You know, of course, you have to have certain capabilities to be able to participate. But, um, I, you know, so I think that CMS can sort of appropriately create some scope around who participates by setting out criteria for participation. Um, I, you know, a sort of threshold question for me in terms of potential pitfalls is how many practices are going to be interested in taking on this level of risk. You certainly didn't see an overwhelmingly positive reaction in the vast majority of comment letters I've seen, and not to say that I've seen them all, but, you know, I've seen a handful of them, and um, press reports and other things. So I, I think it's the challenge for CMS is designing a model that is both sophisticated and appealing to a broad enough group of providers to have a real meaningful test in the Medicare space. Right. And the other problem here, we have to assume this will be voluntary. Right. So you have the self-selection problem inherent with that kind of a model, meaning only those people who would likely be successful will participate. So that skews the results relative to generalizability. Uh, relative to comment letters, I noted in what I drafted, and I'll just note a few of these, there's already substantial um, uh, uh, provider uh, fatigue because CMS or CMI is already fielding well over uh, two dozen uh, other demonstrations. So fatigue amongst the provider community as well as um, Benny's. Uh, you could argue that with a focus on primary care, uh, this could lead to uh, less care comprehensiveness, continuity, and coordination, since most Medicare or a good percentage of Medicare beneficiaries have chronic, uh, at least one chronic condition, uh, so they typically need to see a number 
of, of pro different providers, or at least a primary care provider and a specialist. Uh, the other problem is, much like we've learned recently about the ACO program, this is ultimately a numbers game, which is if you're going to be at any financial risk, you want a large enough Benny population such that your your year-over-year your -year performance isn't just statistically random. Um, and we know, in retrospect, this 5,000 limit for ACOs was probably far too uh, few to participate in that program. And then the other, I think, inherent problem with this that I noted was people get into this to reduce their panel size, and that's specifically for concierge medicine participants. So the problem could be, particularly if you get widespread participation, that, yeah, the bennies who participate amongst these self-selected providers in the demo are happy, but the providers in turn are able to cut their panel size, and so it's, it could become at some point an access uh, issue or problem. Uh, let me just throw out one thing. This is not, and CMS was explicit, explicit about this, so I'll note it, and that is this is not about balanced billing or moving towards balanced allowing providers to balance bill under Medicare. But I will ask you a question related, and that is, how close, if at all, do you think this moves the Medicare program to premium support? Meaning, if we're going to give a beneficiary's provider a, a certain amount of money per month to care for that uh, beneficiary, isn't that in some ways de facto premium support? So that's an, inter is an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about it as much as a step closer to premium support as I had as a step closer to a Medicare Advantage-like relationship in yes. traditional uh -huh. Medicare. Uh -huh. um, and, and so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that as we were commenting earlier, it's really going to depend on the scale and the success, right? If, if we have these demos where you have, you know, somewhere between 15 and 30 participants, similar to the Next Generation ACO program, right? right? Um, coming on board and testing these things, that feels like a step forward to me. Um, not necessarily a step toward premium support, although I, I see what you're saying. And I, you know, I think we are in a place where we need to let more models bloom. And I was actually surprised at how many uh, people seem to be saying there is demo fatigue because, you know, just a few months ago, I think we were hearing a lot of providers saying there aren't enough opportunities in advanced <laughs> right. APMs, and now everyone has demo fatigue. So I, I did think that that was sort of um, an interesting thing to note. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we'll just have to see how things evolve and what CMS comes out with and what it looks like and, the, you know, how much financial responsibility is placed on the beneficiary versus the provider um, and how, how those arrangements come together. Okay, thank you. Uh, just to note uh, for the listener, this is a request for information, so CMS, unlike a notice of proposed rulemaking, has no obligation to make public uh, comments, public comments, stakeholder comments in response to the RFI, so we really won't be able to gauge the sense of the stakeholder community uh, because, again, their comments won't be posted uh, online as they are um, by law under a proposed rule. Let's go to, we started uh, talking about this direct uh, primary care models were very much related to ACOs and CPC+. The last two questions uh, of, in the 22 set are related again to existing ACO initiatives. And question 22 actually says, and I'll read uh, from the RFI, 
Would a DPC model help address certain physician practice needs, or would physician practices refer refinements to existing ACO initiatives to better accommodate physician-led ACOs? Um, it's not as if these two models are mutually exclusive at all. Certainly, CMS could field both simultaneously. And in fact, CMS does seem pretty convicted of doing this. I mean, I think, and I'll ask if you would agree, that we will likely see a DPC demo. It remains to be seen, obviously, how much take-up of participation. But CMS does seem pretty convicted. But that aside, uh, since CMS put it out there, how much uh, weight do you put to this or alternative, which is, should, uh, as uh, CMS asked, uh, should, um, and CMS, of course, has a finite bandwidth, uh, should they be putting more effort into improving, as they say, the existing ACO initiatives? Yeah, so, so pretty clearly the answer is, you know, they should do both, I think. <laughs> but attention needs to be paid to the ACO mm-hmm. initiatives. I know that, you know, you and I have, have talked about this. There have been public comments from the HHS secretary calling that the ACO yes. program lackluster and the results underwhelming. And the solution, the policy solution that is being discussed to address that is, you know, shortening or, sorry, cutting off the amount of time that providers are allowed to be in track one mm-hmm. outside only arrangements at six years it seems like a challenging proposition in that, you know, those ACOs would be forced with a choice of either moving into risk or moving back to fee-for-service. And without a time limit on fee-for-service, it's hard to see how a move back to fee-for-service would get us to the end goal of a truly transformed delivery system. So I, I think a you know, an approach that, you know, we've heard a lot about from, you know, your comment letters and others are, is to improve that ACO program to make those risk tracks more attractive in some way to, to make that jump or that movement forward more palatable to a greater number of ACOs. The provider community, the ACO community has been calling for these types of changes for years at this point, better access to data, improved um, transparency around the financial model, better benchmarking approach. I think we've we've been hearing stakeholder calls for those types of changes for a very long time. And as you know, there's a uh, MSSP proposed rule sitting at OMB that may start to address some of these questions. It's not all that clear to me how many of them, but I, I am hopeful that they will um, you know, both pursue new demos and continue to improve and adapt the existing ones. Thank you. And they do say that, uh, or, or suggest that ACOs could, if they feel this DPC demo, also simultaneously participate in DPC. And they do say also that MA plans can participate in this DPC. So my last question for you will be the, the latter group, the MA, since you're well-versed the Medicare Advantage program, what's your sense of interest in uh, potential MA participation in this model or demo? I ask because it appears MA, certainly the evidence suggests they've not had much interest. The value-based insurance design demo for MA, although it was recently expanded in all 50 states, has had very anemic take-up. Uh, will be interesting to see next year in 19 if MA plans play 
in the APM macro pathway. Um, but what's your sense of where MA is in all this? And it's important, of course, because MA now is more than a third of Medicare bennies, and some people say we could get to 40% of all Medicare under MA in the very near future. Yeah, so specific to this RFI, and then I'll um, sort of address your broader question, I think the main theme I have heard and seen from plans is a level playing field. So if you're going to allow physician practices or multi-specialty physician organizations to take capitation and enroll patients and move in the direction of something that feels more plan-like, the plans would like to see that happen with a parallel set of rules to what plans face in Medicare Advantage. So mm-hmm. that's been kind of a, a pretty key concern. In regards to their to health plan participation in demonstration projects, VBID in a fairly, at least initially limited number of states, I agree um, the uptake hasn't been overwhelming by any by any means, but there are there have not been a lot of options for MA plans that want to be in the innovation space in traditional Medicare. VBID and Comprehensive Primary Care Plus and its predecessor program, CPCI, are ones that come to mind for me. Um, those sort of a multi-payer initiatives uh, included. But, you know, I, I think the plans are doing a, a fair amount of innovation in their provider contracts and are starting to think through how that plays into MACRA and other, you know, other efforts that they may want to undertake. You know, it's interesting, the MACRA APM um, or the other payer advanced alternative payment mm-hmm. model part, the part where MA plans come in, felt so far off in the distance, right? And now all of a sudden here it is at our doorstep with the plans supposed to be submitting that information by Monday of next week. So I agree it will be a very interesting area to watch, but I don't, I don't feel discouraged at the moment. I, I think the plans are sort of still parsing through their options and figuring out how they're going to play in the space. Okay, thank you. We're at uh, we're at our sadly already our time boundary. So, Mar, I appreciate this discussion overview of this RFI. Potentially very interesting. Of course, it all depends on the extent it's it's taken up or there's participation in the demo. Uh, lastly, though, my guess is, would you anticipate this again? It appears CMS is going to go far with this, or CMI. My guess is, if they do, this would be sometime next year. I agree. Okay. All right, thank you again, Mara, for your time. Uh, Generally appreciative. Thank you. All right, take care. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.